I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. My guest today was on the path to a high-flying corporate career before he decided to follow his passion to work in non-government organizations, NGOs. His name is Simon Griffiths, and he's the co-founder and CEO of, believe it or not, a business called Who Gives a Crap, a toilet paper subscription startup that builds toilets in the developing world. Simon launched the business in 2012 with a crowdfunding campaign where he live-streamed himself sitting on a dunny, that's right, a toilet, for 50 hours until he had pre-sold the first $50,000 of toilet rolls. That launch attracted global media attention and generated over $1 million in PR value, not to mention the 2.5 million social media hits he got. Since launching, Who Gives a Crap has tripled in size year on year, largely relying on word of mouth to fuel its growth. This year, they had an incredible spike in sales due to the COVID panic buying, and as a result, they have seen a 1,000% increase in sales and have donated nearly $6 million to charities that provide access to clean water and sanitation in developing nations around the world. Simon has created something quite incredible, and he has actually democratised philanthropy by getting consumers to actually donate small amounts of money to create one big donation that ordinarily we rely on billionaires to do or big corporations to do. It's quite a fascinating program and as to how to de-structure how charity is delivered without having to increase the denominator. And that's a really tough thing that he's done. It's an incredibly good cause. It's a very, very clever business. It talks to all things such as fulfillment. It talks to things like logistics, where you buy and manufacture toilet paper, how you do this with the least amount of carbon impact. It is a really good, high-quality business built by an entrepreneur, but at the same time merging with philanthropic outcomes. It's a very good one. So let's get into it. Simon Griffiths, welcome to The Mentor. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. And you're coming to us from where? Where are you now, Melbourne? I am an hour south of Melbourne, yeah. We, we live um, outside of the city on the Moynton Peninsula, so um, been fortunate to not be in, inside the city for the last six months or so, I think. And do you run your business from there? Yeah, so we're, we're a distributed team, so um, we're spread out across Australia now right across the US. We were mostly on the, the West Coast. Uh, Manila Island and China is where we have team members. Okay, so you should explain to our audience what you mean by a distributed team. So uh, that, <laughs> yep. that's a new concept. Um, so we we're, we're a fully remote workforce is how we started, and then more recently we've started to have um, co-working spaces in our city hubs. So we try to focus our team in Melbourne, Los Angeles, Manila, um, and then we're right across China, and we have one person island. And by doing that, we can work remotely when, you know, that makes the most sense. And then we can bring the team together for face-to-face time when that makes sense as well. And every city hub decides how much time they want to spend together. So the Melbourne hub said, you know, we're more operational. We prefer to do kind of deep headphone style work. So let's come together just one day a week. Whereas the LA hub said, we're more, you know, collaborative marketing, digital product, kind of creative teams. So let's come together three days a week. And that's kind of the rules that we've set for each of our hubs. Yeah. Okay. So you, you're basically running rosters that suit the business operation. Yeah. Yeah. But, but dictated by the team. Yeah. Um, and then in the Philippines, they said, you know, the traffic in Manila is terrible. So um, let's come together once a month on the weekend when the traffic's a lot better. <laughs> and that's how they make it work. 
that makes sense. Um, because my, my business does the same thing, but because we're a distributed business, to, well, in terms of staff, we're distributed. We also run rosters, but it depends on what suits the particular location. So, I mean, your business, CEO, who gives a crap? Now, I'm not, yep. that's, that's not a reflection on your business, but that's the name of your business, who gives a crap? Yeah, that's it. So, yeah, so we're a direct to consumer toilet paper and home products company, and we use half of our profits to help build toilets in different parts of the developing world. So, about seven years old now, uh, $8.38 million donated from those first seven years. So, Give me a bit of background about you. I mean, I, where'd you come from? You know, you're a, you're a Victorian boy. I was actually born in the UK. My whole family's British. Yep. And we moved to Western Australia when I was four. And then I moved to, to Melbourne um, for university. So I finished school in WA, took a year off and went back to the UK and got to know my family who I didn't really know that well because we, um, you know, it's hard to, hard to spend time with them when you live on the other side of the world. And then, yeah, moved to Melbourne when I was 18 and have been here for the last 20 years. So what, why did your mom and dad come to Australia? Um, I think dad had sort of figured out that um, the weather in London kind of sucks <laughs> and the lifestyle with young kids is pretty, pretty hard work. And he'd been doing some consulting work for um, a company in, in WA and had sort of fallen in love with the Australian lifestyle and, and weather. And so he convinced my mom, who was a little bit hesitant to move to Australia for two years and he thought that once he got it here, she'd, she'd say, let's never go back. And fortunately, that's how it all panned out. I mean, I, I lived in Perth for some time. It's it's an unbelievably beautiful place to bring up kids. The things that strike me about Perth, my memories of it, because I was only in my mid-20s when I, when I moved over there for work. People were lovely. They were very open, welcoming, chilled out. The pace was a lot less. Everybody had a boat. And lived you know, <laughs> yeah. and went to Rottnest Island in the summer. Yeah, it, but it actually is a wonderful place. And I, I guess what I'm going to with this is that um, you come across a pretty chilled sort of dude. You've you've come over from Perth to Melbourne to go to university. Um, what did you study? So I studied uh, engineering and commerce. I did finance and economics in in commerce. Um, right. Took a few different ways to get there. I think I started in computer science and then and then ended up in commerce. And then what did you do in terms of career work-wise? Yeah, so I, I tried to to do what I was told to do, which was, you know, like get good grades and then go and get a good job. So I worked briefly as an engineer and was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, I could do that, but it's like not, not the, the most exciting thing I've ever done. And then I tried to work briefly as an investment banker and sort of had the same reaction and thought, you know, maybe management consulting is the thing. If those two jobs haven't been right for me, then maybe I'll really enjoy management consulting. And I think I, I worked pretty hard towards getting this kind of, you know, dream job offer at a consulting firm and, and, and got that. And then took a moment to reflect and realized that if I hadn't enjoyed working as an engineer and I hadn't enjoyed working as a banker, I probably wasn't going to enjoy working as a management consultant either. And so I figured out at that point that, um, you know, what was missing for me was, working on something that I was truly passionate about. And if I wasn't working on something that I was truly passionate about, I couldn't give it my all. I could only give it 70% instead of, instead of my 100%. And so I started thinking about, you know, what, are, what am I truly passionate about? What do I really care about? And I realized that throughout university, I, as a good economist, had figured out that it was much more affordable for me to spend my university holidays in Southeast Asia than it was to stay in Australia. And so I worked all year through university to earn enough money to be able to, you know, live cheaply throughout the holidays overseas. And so lived this very, you know, amazing privileged lifestyle of, of being able to spend three or four months in different parts of the developing world, traveling, volunteering and doing different bits and pieces. And I never thought too much about that until I started asking myself, well, what am I really passionate about? And I realized that, yeah, this kind of, um, enjoyment that I got from spending time in the developing world and thinking about how the world fits together and how, you know, I was born in, in a different part of the world. And that's ultimately led me to have a very different life than if I was born in, you know, somewhere in Southeast Asia, for example. And, um, and I realized that, yeah, this, this kind of interest was, it wasn't just a hobby. It was something that I could turn into a career. And so I started thinking about development aid and development economics and how I could, work in that space with the skill set that I had and that's sort of what ultimately led me to do what I do today. It's a it's an unusual path for me to, for me for yep. someone like me to, to hear um because in some respects it nearly looks like you were privileged 
like in the sense that I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from you, but someone else might be thinking this, like, wow, yeah, okay, this guy had holidays every year. I mean, sure, you weren't you weren't living it up, but you you still had three four months a year holiday. Yeah, he was holidaying in Thailand or Indonesia or wherever it was, Vietnam, somewhere like that. And uh, sure, he lived in. Uh, you probably slept on floors, and you lived in those environments where you didn't have any yep. money. So you just had to do whatever was presented yeah. to you. And you probably weren't eating prawns and caviar. You were eating whatever was presented to you. Yeah, I think the the budget was like twenty five to thirty bucks a day. It was kind of what I lived on for yeah. three months, and yeah. so didn't have to save up too much money to be able to make that trip possible. But but it was a choice. Yeah, you made the choice. You're in a position to make the choice. You weren't forced to live like that. You chose to live like that. Yeah, I loved it. It was like, you know, it was something that I just really enjoyed. Um, but but I think it's worth kind of digging into that a little bit. I was yeah. I was really lucky to take a year off and I went to the UK just as the dot-com bubble, you know, was about to pop and it popped while I was there. And um, I taught myself how to code websites. And so I started my own web development firm and built websites for a year and earned enough money to basically put myself through the first part of uni. And then when I came back, I, I was really lucky to win a scholarship to have all of my board paid at a residential college. So all the money I could earn during the term was, was you know, then able to kind of fund what I was doing during the breaks. Yeah. When I say privilege, what I mean is, you know, a white man born in Australia, that's an incredible amount of privilege in the world. Yep. But um, yeah, you know, I came from a middle-class family and, and, got very lucky in the decisions that I made that ultimately helped me to do some, some pretty incredible things at a young age. Um, but yeah, you know, when you, when you look at that privilege on a global scale, if I was born in, you know, anywhere in, in Southeast Asia, for example, or in the developing world, there's no way I could have ever done what I did. And so when I look at that, I think about how lucky I was to be able to have that experience and ultimately find the thing that I was truly passionate about, which is what I work on today and then I think about the billions of people that will never, ever be able to have that opportunity and have that privilege to be able to find the thing that they're truly passionate about because they don't have access to even the most basic of needs. And so the way I see what I do now is, is if I can help unlock that potential in the billions of people that, that currently don't have access to it, the world would be a vastly different place. And that's an amazing thing to be able to work on and, and you know, hopefully help to solve at least some of that problem. I'd like to actually, you know, I want to use your terminology. I just want to dig into that a little bit more because you're right. I'm one too. Well, you know, we are incredibly lucky, privileged, whatever the word is, to be white males born here in Australia. In my case, born in Australia, your case, brought up here in Australia. Because yep. it's, a, it's, a, it's a wealthy country. It's a rich country. Our standard of living is extraordinarily high. If you have a, you know, average or above average intelligence, you'll get into a university. Our education institutions are very good. And I never really thought about it until later in my life, but I certainly didn't think about it at the time, how lucky I am in a relative sense. For me, I did think about it later on. And for me, I, which is why I run my business called The Mentor. I'm actually trying to pay forward to other people who probably don't have the same luck or privilege that I had in dealing with certain people I dealt with in my life. And not many people get to go into business with Kerry Packer. Yeah. So I'm trying to pay that forward. For me, and I often thought to myself, is that a guilt thing for me? And I'm doing it out of guilt because I feel guilty because I'm so privileged relative to everybody else. Or is it, am I just taking the higher ground and saying, no, it's not guilt. And I'm still wrestle with it. Um, look, it's just something you got market, but there is an obligation to pay it forward. What's your go? I mean, what do you feel? Was it guilt or is it um, obligation? What do you think? I, I think I don't. I have never really thought about it in those terms. I think about it more in terms of um, when you when you work in a company. You know, you start out on the tools and you're very much in the day to day operations. And then as you become a manager, I always thought that the manager's role was to manage the people and direct the work. But it's not. It's actually to support the people that work beneath them to enable them to have their best work. And so that's kind of how I think about this. It's that I have an opportunity to be able to support other people to unlock what is inside of them. And that's something that I get incredibly excited about. So for me, it comes back to, um, yeah, having the potential to, you know, empower someone else. And, and I think any good manager gets excited by that in the same way that, that, that I do, which, um, you know, not to say I'm a, a manager of, of people, you know, in different parts of the world, but that's kind of the analogy that, that I use to think about it. So 
I think it probably comes closer to, you know, obligation that um, I felt like I had an obligation to, to do something that, that had a, a greater meaning, a greater good behind it. And being very lucky to be born in an era where I had the choice to be able to do that, you know, maybe 50 years ago, that wouldn't have been such an easy choice to make. But the position that the world's in today made that possible for me, which is amazing. Yeah, the position being that there are incredible um, extremes in terms of luck. Yeah. So how old are you now? Like you're a young man, but how old are you? I'm 38. I don't feel I don't feel young, but, but yeah, um, mi- middle aged. I think I'm probably classed as now. No, no, no. It's got to no, be coming soon. 30, 38's the new 28. So uh, so yeah. not, I still I still think I still think you're very young. And it, and when did you? When was the moment that you decided this is what I want to do? What you're doing now? Yeah, it was. Um, it was kind of a slow burn. I think I figured out what I didn't want to do before I figured out what I did want to do. And so I figured out that that management consulting job didn't make sense for me and then said, all right, well, if that doesn't make sense, I need to figure out what does. And that, that was a, a journey of, um, you know, w- what I call living the, the lean startup. You know, people talk about minimum viable products and testing and learning. I kind of did that with my own career in a way. And so I, I said, this isn't right. So let me try the other end of the spectrum. And I, I jumped into a role with a nonprofit and spent, um, you know, some time in South Africa working on an education-based nonprofit project. Realized that I loved the environment that I was working in and the outcomes that I was achieving, but I was not, you know, I was overqualified for the role, which meant that it it, it wasn't a, a good and scalable use of my time, and we were never going to be able to impact more than the lives of a thousand people. And and if we're really trying to change problems that affect billions of people, then you need to be at least able to, you know, affect millions in order to make a, a dent. Um, and so I realized that, um, you know, I was getting closer, but that wasn't quite right. And then I started thinking about, you know, what's wrong and, and came to the conclusion that there's lots of amazing organizations out there that do incredible work and they all compete for the same pool of funds that exist in the philanthropy market. Mm. And so if we're trying to have more impact, we have to increase the pool of funds that's available to them. But it's very hard to increase the pool of philanthropy to double the size of the philanthropy market. You have to get everyone to give twice as much as what they do today forever. That's the only way you can do it. So instead of trying to do that, I said, well, let's try to tap into the trillions of dollars that change hands in the economy rather than the billions of dollars in the philanthropy market tap into the trillions of dollars changing hands from the sale of goods and services and skim some of, of the profits off the top of that to, to funnel back into these organizations. And so came to the conclusion that, you know, I could use my skills to start businesses in the developed world and use the profits to have impact in the developing world. And this was the third business that was kind of in that um, vein. Is that about who gives a crap? Is that the business you're talking about or some other business prior to who gives a crap? Yeah, so there was a, c- a couple of businesses prior, all based out of Australia. And then, um, yeah, who gives a crap was the one that took off. But very similar business models, each an iteration on the last. So, you know, constantly trying to improve what the execution strategy was in order to make the next business more successful. If you wouldn't mind just explaining to our listeners the model that you were refining in terms of, taking some profits off the top, those were the words you used. Just explain that model, like open the model up a little bit, the mathematics of it or the, the economics of the model, as opposed to, as you said, yes. going and hitting up all the same people, oh, can you give me a donation? Yeah, so, so you know, when you look at, you know, companies like Kimberly Clark, great example, tens of billions of dollars of revenue. What if we could redirect, you know, just 5% of that, it ends up being about a billion dollars. So, So if we kind of play that out, that's one category, you know, that's toilet paper, tissues and and diapers, basically nappies. If we play that out across all of the other categories that exist in the world, all of a sudden you create a very scalable approach to, you know, pushing funding into different places than where it is today. But the, you know, the traditional model of capitalism has been that, that we make money for shareholders and for no one else. And I thought that in today's world, I think there's a better way of doing capitalism that that can serve the customer who now you know has an incentive to buy a product because it does more than just serve themselves; it also serves someone else. 
I think that has really positive effects for the team that, that build those businesses because now they can work on a problem that's greater than just, you know, putting profits into shareholders' pockets. And obviously for the beneficiaries, they're tapping into the pool of funds that is changing hands in the economy as opposed to just relying on the pool of funds that exist in the philanthropy market. And so it's a way of, of scaling philanthropy that hasn't previously been possible because the philanthropy market, as we said before, is somewhat capped. It's very hard to, to scale the size of the philanthropy market without getting many more Bill Gateses in the world who can tip you know tens of billions of dollars into it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing that you're talking about here because you mentioned the word capitalism. It's sort of like a, a merging of capitalism with social conscience. Capitalism ordinarily doesn't have social conscience. The individuals that who are the shareholders, some of those will have a social conscience, some of those just looking for a dividend. Yep. So what you're doing here is your model is, well, the variables within your modeling make assumptions and that you are looking for those people with social conscience. And what you're doing is you're actually aggregating the social conscience stakeholders, shareholders, into your capitalist venture. Yeah, and so there's, there's two things here that are worth noting. I think, you know, the, the old way of doing things was make a lot of money as a shareholder and then potentially donate some of it depending on what that individual's ethics and values were. What I'm saying is let's blend those two things together. You know, let's blend the, the, the process of making money and making donations so that those two things happen at the same time. So that's the shareholder level. And then on a consumer level who's buying the products, the idea there is that you can have meaningful impact as a consumer by buying products that are sold at scale in huge volumes. And so when you look at, you know, these, these big consumer packaged goods companies, mm. they're selling, you know, literally like hundreds of millions of, of products. And if we can make a very small change on, you know, those hundreds of millions of products that are sold, that has a massive impact because you multiply that small change out by a hundred million times and ultimately the impact's very big. So as a consumer, you can have significant impact if you're part of this movement of consumers that is choosing to, to make a, a change in their consumption decisions to have just a very small amount of impact with every single decision that they make. And so I think that's a, a very powerful way of creating change in this new era of, of you know, what the future can look like. I find that fascinating. Um, and generally speaking, COVID has sort of built, a, in my mind, a humanity, you know, things that we never thought about before. Yeah. And what you're talking about is an evolution of markets. Yeah. At the shareholder level, at the consumer level, it's an evolution of markets. And we've seen an evolution of markets with technology whereby, you know, Facebook's built a marketplace, you know, Google's got a marketplace, there's all these market, technological marketplaces. So there's been a massive change in marketplaces through technology. But what you're talking about is um, something slightly different and that is an evolution of how we feel or how we want to impact everything. And because globalization um, has made us become much more aware of everything else that's going on in the world, but all of a sudden that is all been turned up on its, has all been turned on its head. So at some stage in your relatively young years, you sat down and you thought about this evolution what was the influences on you to come to that decision or the, or at least that start that thinking? Because that's pretty mature stuff. That's a great question. And, you know, for me that, that actually came from, you know, I was the kid at school who, who sold stuff to everyone. I was that entrepreneurial kid. I think there was one in, you know, at least one in every class that um, yeah, would, would, you know, look after people's pets for money and put flyers in people's mailboxes advertising that. So I was a really entrepreneurial kid but there was always something that felt a little bit lackluster with that transaction. You know, it felt like it was too transactional that, that it was, you know, purely just based around money and that didn't to me feel right. And so when I went to university, I kind of half joked that I had the entrepreneurship beaten out of me, you know, at university, you get funneled into these very traditional kind of co corporate pathways. And so it took me about um, seven years to figure out that that wasn't right, that I didn't want to do that and find my way back to entrepreneurship. And then when I did, it, it was really because I was thinking about working on something that I was truly passionate about and, and realized that I could actually combine you know, entrepreneurship and take that piece of it that didn't feel right by focusing you know, what we were doing and the profits that we were generating to be creating social impact. Um, and so 
it took a couple of iterations. The, the first two business models were 100% revenue donating initially and then 100% profit donating with the second business. And I realized pretty quickly that those two business models weren't scalable because you're, you're you know, trying to get all the profits out of the business, which doesn't leave you money to, to actually grow the business over time. And so the third one was who gives a crap where we donate 50% of our profits and that's turned out to be scalable both in terms of you know, what will hopefully one day result in financial returns to prove the business model works, but really scalable in the social impact. And, and that's really highly visible through the donations that we've made to date. So yeah, kind of continual iteration on different business models to get to the one that, that I think is, you know, has the potential to change the world. So you know, I think it, for your age group and for your cohort, there is a new form of entrepreneur. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I mean, you, you've got lots of colleagues. I mean, do, do, you, do you think there's a new type of entrepreneur as opposed to, say, my cohort, which is like, you know, another generation you know, before you, where you never had that breadth of thinking? Is that something you talk about? Yeah, that, that comes not just from a new form of entrepreneur, but a new form of consumer as well. So the demand in the marketplace has shifted. 10 years ago when we got started, there were no companies that were out there who were able to meet that shifting demand. And so when we put what we were doing into the market, it took off because people were like, this is what I've been looking for. And so now we're seeing more companies come and, and help meet that demand, which is incredibly exciting. And, and you know, this is the first wave of it. So what we'll see happen in the next decade will be entirely different and hopefully you know, a continual progression taking us to an even better place than where we are today. But yeah, it's, it's a, a shift in demand and it's, it's not just my generation. There's, um, you know, a lot of our customers uh, right into their, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. So I think that demand has been there in different degrees, but it's really starting to bubble to the surface in the last decade or so. And maybe part of that was, you know, the global financial crisis, which I think showed that the current way of thinking about capitalism back in 2008 wasn't quite right. And as, you know, an economy, a global economy, we had to evolve the way that we think about business and, and money and transactions. But do you think, I, I guess what I'm trying to work out here, Simon, is, is it this, do you think that you're driving the outcomes, you the businessman, you the entrepreneur, are you driving the demand or are simply people in your cohort just meeting the demand of the consumer? Is it the consumer driving this? Is the consumer saying, you know what, I want something different? I want to do something different. I want to give back. I want to leverage my, my consumption into something else as well. You know, where's it coming from? Are you meeting the demand or is it the other way? Yeah, I think that's where it started. It started with the consumer saying, I want to do this. And, and you know, when, we, when we, we were those consumers, that's the insight that we started from. We wanted to buy products that were more closely aligned with our values. And when we did that, we felt like we were compromising on product quality, on price or on customer experience. And so we said, if we can design a product that sits at the intersection of a brand that people love because it looks great and it feels awesome to use, has a great customer experience at the intersection of that and a brand that closely aligns with people's ethics and values, we'll create something that people will want to shout about the rooftops from. And so when we put it into the market, we found those consumers who'd been looking for it and then they shouted about the rooftops from it. And all of a sudden it started to you know, resonate and snowball with people that maybe hadn't been thinking about it before, but were thinking about it now as a result of, of you know, being told about it or, or um, yeah, it being shared on their social media feed. So it's, I think it's a bit of both. Um, and we're excited to be you know, one of the companies that's at the forefront of helping bring this new way of consuming to, to the world. Well, what's interesting is this is not a, a billionaire, it's not you know, Bill Gates or someone like that using their market power and or their wealth, which is market power, to um, impact things that they personally believe in. This seems to me to be a younger man, yourself in your, your case, but there's a cohort of you, as you said, who are actually using the power of the marketplace to address the issues and to make change. So you're really creating the marketplace, just like Google did and uh, Microsoft did and uh, Amazon did and various others have done. But you're creating a marketplace, a place where everyone can meet those consumers, um, can meet the demands of um, those people who need your philanthropy or the philanthropy of your consumers. You've created this place where everybody can come to. So 
who gives a crap is basically a marketplace. Yeah, where the it's a platform. people's minds meet. Yeah, it's a platform. So it's it is a technology play in some respects because you are creating a marketplace. That's it, and the internet is the what enables us to do that at scale. So yeah. If the internet didn't exist, we couldn't be here today because we'd be fighting for shelf space at the supermarkets, which is a very hard game to play. But we've been able to use the internet to make this concept. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Something that's available globally. So we're now in the US, UK, Europe. We're about to open up Canada. And that's all possible because the internet enables us to reach those customers in a way that has never been possible before. Okay, well, we're going to go to the break and when we come back, um, I, I want to now talk about the business, the actual business. It is a business. I mean, it might be philanthropic and may not be for profit for shareholders or send or stakeholders, but it's nonetheless has to have uh, built on business principles because that's to yeah. work. Um, I want to talk about that. So if we go to the break, we're going to come straight back. We're back from the break, and I'm here with Simon Griffiths. Now, he's the founder of Who Gives a Crap? And uh, we've been talking about uh, a whole series of thought progressions that Simon engaged in in relation to where he's ended up today. And, you know, clearly what I've unpacked for myself and hopefully for our listeners is that ultimately what he has got here is a platform or it's a marketplace where people with like who are like-minded are meeting. And in his case, it's consumers a meeting with, um, with Simon who supplies to them a product which the consumers get leverage out of. In other words, and what I mean by that is leverage for a whole series of reasons for each consumer, but leverage, I'm buying the product, but I know the money that I'm spending is going towards not just buying the product, but doing other good things. Would that be a fair assessment? of? Yeah. You? So we're sort of, in a way, we're pairing a consumer up with a cause that they you know care about, hopefully directly, but sometimes indirectly and giving them a product as well as promising that, that there's a donation that, that comes out of that, assuming we're profitable at the end of the financial year, which we have been every year since we started. So, And that requires for the consumers to engage awareness. That also makes an assumption, if it's going to be successful, that the platform has good branding and or is trusted and can execute. And I guess the, probably the first thing I want to talk about is uh, the awareness program. Like, how do you tell people about this? I mean, how, your marketplace, how do you get them there? So initially it was all word of mouth from our first crowdfunding campaign. And Tell we, me about that. that. Yeah, that, that was how we got started. I'll be talking a little bit more about this at the, the AANA conference that we've got coming up shortly. But what is, what is the AANA conference? Yeah, so it's an, an industry advertising conference that um, is happening in Sydney. Uh, should be a lot of fun, amazing set of speakers. Yeah. You know, Julia Gillard, Joe, one of the, the Mecca founders, and then we've got Telstra CMO and, and CEO and, and Cole's CEO on stage. So, um, and Adam Goods as well. So an amazing lineup, which um, will be really interesting, kind of looking at a very broad view of, of advertising. But I'll be talking a lot about how we go about growing the business and reaching our customer there. The kind of winding right back though, when we got started, it was with a crowdfunding campaign because we didn't have the money to get started. We needed to find the $50,000 to place our first production run, but also recognize that if we pulled that off, we'd end up with 50,000 rolls of toilet paper, which would fill my house from floor to ceiling and, you know, create its own problem if we didn't have customers. It's a crowdfunding enabled us to get the money, but also find the first 1,000 customers. 
And so we, we launched that crowdfunding campaign in, in June 2012 and realized that we were probably selling the most boring product in the history of crowdfunding at that point. It was still a relatively new concept. And so we had to do something different to get people's attention. And I agreed to sit on a toilet on a live web feed until we'd pre-sold the first $50,000 worth of product. And so we thought it would hopefully take 12 hours. It ended up taking 50 hours, 50 horrible, never ever to be repeated hours of my life. But we got the $50,000 that we needed and, and we were in business, which was a pretty amazing way to get started. And so we then spent eight months kind of you know, producing the product and, and bringing it to market with this new brand. And honestly, we thought people aren't going to buy toilet paper online. You know, 99.9% of Australia's toilet paper is sold through supermarkets. But let's give it a shot. Let's kind of ship it out and see what happens. We sent out our first boxes without us doing any marketing or sales ourselves. We started to see our daily sales rate double every day on the day prior. And after five days, we sold out of the complete you know, supplier that we thought was going to last three months. And so we realized that actually people would buy toilet paper online. And the reason we were growing so fast was because they were telling everyone they knew about it. They were taking roles to work and giving them to friends and family and literally telling everyone they knew about what we were doing. And so that word of mouth groundswell that we had was basically so big that, that we couldn't advertise for the first two years of the business because we were just trying to keep up with you know, the crazy pace that that, that word of mouth had us growing at. Because the toilet paper is sort of not really, there's no Armani toilet paper. So, uh, you know, toilet paper is a toilet paper. Yeah. So it is something you, you can easily buy in online. I mean, it's not something you have to necessarily, it's not about the wrapping you know, it's, it's dunny paper. Okay. So that, that makes sense that people would buy it because it's not necessarily something you have to touch and feel and all that sort of stuff. But the, the stunt intrigues me who come up with the idea. And by the way, did you sleep on the toilet? I mean, how does it all work? What, did, what happened? Yeah. Did you sleep on the toilet for 50 hours? Did you go to sleep? So, yeah. Basically I'd stayed up two nights in a row at 4am on the second night. I was like, you know, about to, to, I felt like I was about to die. Like I was in pretty dire straits hallucinating. I don't know if you've ever stayed up that long without sleeping, but you know, you can start hallucinating everything on my computer turned into like moving images, even though it was all still. And I kept thinking there was a, a shelf next to me that I could lean on and then would almost fall off the toilet when I tried to lean on it because it didn't exist. But um, we tried shooting the campaign ourselves and thought we'd done a pretty good job and then watched the video and went, oh, it's pretty boring. And one of our friends said, oh, you know, I know an, an advertising firm that, you know, maybe they'd look at this and see if they could help. And so we ended up working with, with naked communications on it. Um, and they, um, yeah, did a really amazing kind of revenue deal with us. So if the campaign was successful, then, then that was how they'd get paid. And one of the guys that was working on that lock hall, um, he, at the 11th hour, you know, just as we were about to finalize the script said, I've got it. Like, here's the idea that's going to make this work. And, uh, it was a great idea. And, and, you know, I think I got pitched over the phone and, and it was one of those ideas that when you hear it, you just, you know, know that you've got to say yes, even though it's going to be horrible and painful and, and really terrible because it just had the, you know, the potential to go viral in a way that was quite amazing. So, um, yeah, we were, we were lucky. It did go viral. It, it got picked up, you know, national print, all the major papers in Australia, national television in Australia, 2.5 million social media hits globally over the course of, of the campaign. And, and that enabled us to find those first 1000 customers from you know, Australia and, and also the U S where we were initially launching into. Was it live streamed or did you film it then record it and edit it and then push it? No, it was, it was live streamed. Live streamed. The actual stunt of sitting on the toilet was live streamed. Yeah. Every four hours we'd get reported for pornographic content because they didn't have any <laughs> pants on despite having boxer shots that you couldn't see. And so we'd get taken down from the streaming site and have to find a new streaming site, which, you know, gave us 10 to 15 minutes for me to stand up and stretch my legs and actually go to the bathroom and then, um, yeah, jump back on and, and keep going. So I think 46 hours in, um, you know, it was hallucinating and trying to drum up kind of extra traffic on the internet using like Reddit in the U S to see if we could find more people to, to donate and get us over the line. And someone said, don't you know that if you stay up too long, you go into a state of permanent psychosis? And I was like, no, like no one told me that. So I started Googling that. And, and the last thing you want to be doing when you've stayed up for 46 hours is Googling what, what permanent psychosis possibilities look like, but um, kind of got freaked out and went, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm you know, going to pull up my pants and I turned around and slept on the cistern. So I was still on the toilet 
And two hours later, someone came and woke me up and said, Simon, the last money's coming in. Australia's waking up. We're going to get there. You've got to, you've got to be here for this last bit. And so we, um, yeah, we got the, the last dollars in, in, in those, those final hours, which was a bit of a relief. At that point, I couldn't feel either of my legs. Um, so I had to go and check out for, for deep vein thrombosis, which the DVT specialist said, we've never seen anyone as young as you. What are you doing here? I said, oh, I just sat on a toilet for 50 hours. I said, oh, okay, well, <laughs> whip your pants off. Let's have a look. Just make sure everything's fine. And, and luckily it was, but I still get leg pain in that left quad if I sit down in the wrong position for too long, you know, almost 10 years later. <laughs> and, and, and what was the continuum then? Like so you launched it, it was a really great stunt. I mean, it's a cool adventure to be able to do that um, and, and be successful at the same, same time. But what was the continuum? And then so in terms of your awareness program, how did you continually then remind everybody that they should consume your toilet rolls? Honestly, when we first started, we were, you know, really amateur this now you know the direct consumer movement is a known kind of phenomenon there's marketers who specialize in it when we started this we were like one of the first companies that was that was operating in this space and so there was no playbook and so we kind of just made a bunch of mistakes but we're really lucky that our customers believed in the product and what we were trying to do enough to forgive us for some of those things that we got wrong early on and still continue to tell other people about it and came back and bought again because the premise was so strong that the you know retention and bring customers back into your business the best way to do that is by having a great product and for us you know the customer experience of the impact and the packaging and the ease of home delivery of this product that had always been bought in the supermarkets in big plastic bags and now was plastic free and, and delivered to their door all of that stuff was so good that everyone was, was, you know, enough people were happy to come back and buy again. And we've had amazing retention as a result. You have created a movement to, to some extent. Um, and I don't mean that in a smart ass, a, a smart <laughs> ass, a smart ass <laughs> sense. And I shouldn't have used the word ass there because it is, that's all relevant, but, but you have created a movement, but for any movement to be properly created, it needs to have a product. I mean, lots of people have high ideals and big dreams about, similar to what you've done they they have a movement they want to create in, in order to get an outcome would you mind commenting on how important it was to, to a to have a stunt that that was important but to have a product in the middle of it like yours is a toilet roll but it's, your product's probably broader than that but let's just say right now the physical product's a toilet roll how important is it to have a product in hindsight how important is the product to have a product to create a movement yeah i mean i think having having a product to create a movement and particularly one that is a, a consumable product, I think really enables, you know, the movement to be more powerful. So because we had a physical product that looked great, was a really good customer experience and, and did good, you know, it lived up to the ethics and values of the customer, that physical product became something that was really easy to gift to other people. And so when you look at, you know, our movement's grown over time, more than 50% of our customers have given our toilet paper as a gift. And so that, that, you know, gives an indication of how important physical product has been in helping us to expand the movement because we've created something that, that enables someone to very easily tell someone else about what we're doing by giving it, you know, either as a role or as a box to someone to kind of start to engage them in, in what we're doing. And then we can, with packaging, tell the story of, of, who we are as a company, what we do from the impact side of things and, and start to bring those new customers on the journey. Um, so a physical product, it's not, it's not necessary, but I think it, it really has enabled us to build that movement in a way that, that is very powerful. And because it's a consumable that people run out and then buy again, you know, continue to engage people over a very long period of time and then be able to tell the different, you know, the same brand story of what we do in a hundred different ways with different stories of people that we're impacting because we can communicate directly with, you know, the individuals that are part of that movement. And if we were selling in supermarkets, for example, we wouldn't be able to do that. We wouldn't have their email addresses and be able to talk to them in the way that we're able to with, you know, the, the, the way that we've built the brand digitally. Before I shift positions to the philanthropy side, you just hit on something I do want to just to unpick a little bit. Um, the data. I mean, you must have incredible amount of data out there. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and I guess you use the data to continue the conversations and to sort of try and up the ante in terms of sales and, and or engagement and therefore more sales so that you can actually achieve your philanthropic 
objective. How, how sophisticated have you become in data and the analytics? I think that, that's correct. I just want to say that it's not, you know, I think you, you can think about data and sales and start to get into a pretty icky place. The way that we think about data is how do we use that data to enhance the customer experience? And if we can enhance the customer experience, make the product better as a result, then people will want to come back and, and be you know, a, a part of the journey for a longer period of time. So when we first looked at the product, we said the physical product of toilet paper is, is good enough. We don't need five-ply, eight-ply toilet paper. You know, the innovation that, that can happen in this category, it's not so much in the physical product as it is in everything that sits around it in the customer experience. And so we have an opportunity to improve on the environmental credentials, on the social impact credentials with our donation, on the packaging, on the home delivery, on the customer service when something goes wrong or someone just wants to hear a joke on the social media experience. You know, we can innovate everything around that, which ultimately delivers a better product to our customer than what they could get from someone that was just selling through supermarkets. So that's a, that's a big part of, of how we think about things. And then data becomes a part of that customer experience because if, if you think about the pain points of toilet paper, the biggest pain point is when you run out. And so if we can use our data, which we've got really amazing data because we often understand you know, household size and a few other things, we can use that to predict when someone will be about to run out and either on a subscription, you know, get that frequency set perfectly based on what their unique household usage looks like or on an ad hoc you know, customer that's not a subscriber based on their past order cadence, we can predict when they're about to run out and then start that conversation with them at the point where we think they're probably close to the end of their box. So if we can solve that problem and make sure that someone never runs out of toilet paper again, we create a product that is more valuable to the customer than you know, any other toilet paper that they can buy. So, so are, you, are you doing any machine learning in terms of um, behaviors? Take subscriptions aside where someone's actually telling you how often they want to get something. Let's say it's a, an ad hoc buyer, but you know that I'm an ad hoc buyer, I live in Watson's Bay in Sydney, I mean, I don't know what data information you get from me when I sign up, but let's say you get a lot of information about me and uh, your machine tells you Marcus is likely to need another set of toilet roll once a week. So is using machine learning? Yeah, we we use software that has machine learning as a a part of it. Um, The interesting thing about our product is that if you're a household of of two people, you know, at a a certain age, if you find another household that's got the exact same demographic information, the usage will not be the same. Like there's a huge amount of variation in usage. And so we actually have to really work with the individual customer to figure out, you know, where they sit on this high variance of of usage that we see. So we can predict, you know, what we think will be the, the median point where they'd need to reorder. But the reality is that we're always wrong. And so we have to work with the customer on two or three purchases to kind of get that frequency tightened up to a place where we think it's it's broadly correct. Right. So two other things I want to ask you before I talk about the outcomes, the final outcomes, the most probably the most important outcomes, is one, in terms of fulfillment, that is actually getting stuff to their door because it's delivered to the home or the office, I guess. Yep. How do you do that? that that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a, it's a harder problem to solve in Australia yeah. than anywhere else in the world that we operate. Yeah. Um, I don't know why that is. Australia's got, you know, a probably a fairly unique population spread around the country, a very big country, very sparsely you know, populated in the middle, which creates a lot of challenges. So there's a fun story behind this. Um, with our very first you know, order that we sold, we'd set up a, a test store on, on Shopify, which is who we still use today. And we'd, we'd got some Google AdWords and pointed them to our test store before we'd launched saying, buy who gives a crap toilet paper and we'll donate 50% of the profits. We made our first sale. We sold 48 rolls for $30, went to the supermarket and you know, bought someone else's product, put it into a box and then stuck a who gives a crap kind of sticker on the side of it, took it to Australia Post and said, can you send this to our first customer? You know, We've been told it's going to cost $8 regardless of where they are in Australia. We want to send it from Melbourne to Albany in Western Australia. And the person at the post office said, yeah, no worries. That'll cost $54. And so we lost $24 on that first box, let alone, you know, the cost of the product that was inside the box. And so someone at Australia Post had given us the wrong information, but that taught us that if we were going to be successful at this, logistics had to be our, like, you know, our secret weapon. 
And so luckily, I, as I said, I'd grown up in Perth and, and my parents were still living over there. So we put pallet loads of product on the train. They'd arrive in my parents' garage and my dad would drive around in our family car dropping boxes of toilet paper off to people. And that's how we covered all of Western Australia, you know, using post to get outside of, of Perth. Um, in Melbourne, we could cover almost the whole eastern seaboard with the exception of, of Hobart. Um, and about six months in, you know, running this way, I think someone in Perth ran this, you know, this amazing plastic-free campaign and we sold out of, of product in, uh, you know, dad's, um, dad's garage kind of inventory warehouse and we put two more pallets of product on the, on the train. They got delayed and took two weeks to get there. And by that time, dad had a, a backlog of 150 orders for, you know, our, our Western Australian customers. And he called me up and said, that's it. I'm done. You've got to find a, a warehouse to do this for you properly. And so we opened up our very first warehouse outside of Melbourne in Perth and then quite quickly said, you know, that's the future. And so we replicated in, in Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide, Hobart, and that's enabled us to be very close to the customer, which means that we get fast shipping, also a lower carbon footprint because the truck miles, are, you know, the most carbon intensive part of the transport process. So if we can cut that distance down, that's a positive. And um, it makes it more affordable as well because, the cost of shipping is very closely related to the distance that we're sending to the customer. And so that's how we've gone about, you know, really optimizing for both speed, but also the other stuff that's important to us as a business. That's interesting. So fulfillment is you are a logistics business. You are a, a platform as well. Um, you know, you're a community, you're a marketplace. There's a whole stack of things you are. Tell me about the outcomes. I mean, tell me what the donations are producing around the world yeah. and, and whereabouts in the world and to whom. Yeah. So, so we work, you know, uh, uh, kind of the way we think about philanthropy is almost like a, a, a kind of stock portfolio or an investment portfolio. So we have um, some blue chip stuff that we know is really reliable and gives us a great return. And for us, that's WaterAid and they make up the bulk of our kind of philanthropic portfolio. And we have some high risk, high return stuff that if it, if it pulls off, it will change the way that sanitation is done, you know, potentially globally. And for us, that's this organization called Sanergy in Nairobi who operate in an urban slum environment. So very densely populated. You can't get cars through there. You can't plumb the slums because it's too dense and, and just doesn't work. And so they've created an above ground toilet solution where um, you kind of, when you remove waste, you, you kind of seal up a container pull it out and then load it onto a trolley, take it out of the slum, put it onto a truck, and then it gets taken to an offsite processing facility where they use black soldier flies to um, consume that waste that's mixed up with food waste from restaurants and then turn that into either um, agricultural feed or fertilizer are kind of the two products that they have. So they can actually sell it and make money from the waste, which is kind of amazing. And so if they can get the cost of putting the toilets in to collect that waste down to about 10 US dollars per person, it becomes more efficient for the Kenyan government to fund toilets for everyone in the slums using Sanergy's model than it does for them to allow the sanitation problem to exist because the cost of, of the sanitation problem is more than $10 or you know, roughly $10 a head for, for um, everyone in, in that slum environment. So high risk because if they pull it off, it will result in, you know, 8 million people in Kenya with access to sanitation very quickly and then potentially go into other markets around the world. But if they don't pull it off, it will only ever impact, you know, 10,000 toilets rather than something that can impact millions and millions of people. You are acting like a fund manager in some respects, some in terms of the portfolio, which is quite, quite smart. The whole thing is extraordinarily interesting to me. Um, how do you feel? I mean, like, Bill Gates had to become a multi-billionaire to be able to have these sorts of impacts on the world. You've seen him bypass the whole billionaire race and you're actually doing what he does, albeit on a smaller scale, got it, but you're still getting the, it's the same outcome. You're saying you are really helping advance a particular thing that is of interest to you to undeveloped nations or, and or people who aren't as privileged or as lucky as you. It's no different what Bill Gates does. But you've you've gone right past. You you just bypass completely. Gone past. Go. You've said I'm not even going to go down the billionaire track, but I'm going to go straight to it. How do you feel living that life? Well, I think like the the important thing there is it's not it's not us. It's our customers. Yep. Like our customers are the ones that make that decision that makes it possible for all of that to happen. So we've taken it from you know 
the people that have impacts, there's three people. And this, again, I'm, I'm quoting um, someone else here, um, Ernesto Schmidt, who's someone that we really like. He talks about three people that can have impact. There's the billionaires, the Bill Gates, and you know, it's pretty hard to be one of them. There's not many of them. There's people who work in government in the right roles. And again, there's not many of them. It's pretty hard to be one of them. The third way to have impact is to be one of millions of consumers that make a very small choice that at scale has a huge amount of impact. And that's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to shift not just the toilet paper category, but hopefully other categories and other industries with the whiplash of, of you know, this new way of thinking, which forces other people to adopt a, a different way of doing things as well. It just gets me incredibly excited thinking about what those huge companies will do when it comes to this idea of consumer-driven philanthropy in, in the decade that we've got ahead. It's sort of like um, a democratization of um, philanthropy because mathematically what you said is very interesting. Um, you know, Bill Gates does it out of one pot. What you've done is basically democratize the pot into yeah. hundreds of thousands of people who then help hundreds of thousands of people. And you're, and you're the pathway. And, and we've accelerated it. So the old model was I buy this product to make one person rich who then may make a donation, whereas now it's I buy this product to have an immediate donation. That's cool. You bypass the billionaire. Yeah. You've taken out the middleman. Yeah, in, in a way. And, 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 you know, I think honestly, like, Less, less billionaires in the future and, and more kind of profits being sent out of business models. Like that's, that's what I think the future will hopefully look like, which um, yeah, will hopefully start to put us on a more level playing field globally and, and give some of these 2 billion people that don't have access to a toilet the opportunity to, to go on this journey and, and find what they're truly passionate about and unlock some of that potential that will make the world a vastly different place in the future. What, what's uh, fascinating is that, um, did you say 2 billion people don't have access to a toilet? Yep. Okay, so there's 2 billion people don't have access to it. 2 billion people have, do not have the opportunity to experience sitting on a dunny, yet when you were sitting on the toilet for 50 hours, I wonder whether you thought to yourself, one day if my sitting on a toilet for 50 hours will be able to assist somebody to sit on it for two minutes because otherwise unless I do this, I'll never have the opportunity to do that. Therefore, it is worth me sitting on this toilet for 50 hours. Yeah, that sums it up. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah, if you go right back to 2012 when you did it, that's the outcome of your 50 hours on a dunny. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> what you are doing is not something that was, would have ever been contemplated by someone like me at, my, at your age. And uh, for me, this whole discussion has been a, a great learning curve for me and it's actually been a good tap on the shoulder um, I'm more closer to the Bill Gates style of person. I decide who I give my money to, when and where, and what are the terms, and what do I expect back from it. And I've never really thought to my, about um, being a giver through consumption. And, uh, and I'm now much more aware of that. Oh, by the way, do you want to ask me a question? I'm asking all the questions. Do you have a question for me? Yeah, may- maybe my question for you is, is you know, this crazy journey that we're on, trying to, to not only you know, solve the sanitation problem, but set an example for businesses and, and show that, you know, we can achieve financial returns and social impact at scale to get more entrepreneurs and more investors into the space as an individual, how, how can you play a role in that, you know, as a consumer or through your work, is there a way that, that you could help accelerate that crazy journey that we're on? The answer to that is I'm happy to help, but how, I, how I, I don't know the answer to that right now. Um, but definitely what you've made me think about is how I can help a, as a consumer. Because I've got choices how I consume. I can either go down to Woolworths or one of the department stores and buy my toilet paper, or I could buy it through you guys. And um, it's not a big leap for me to do that in the, in the first place. Yeah. So one thing is directing this awareness to people like me. Yeah. Hopefully this show will actually do that for the people who listen to the show. And I'm hoping that you know people will become much more aware of your movement and will perhaps engage in or participate with you. But I'm happy to think about that. And um, through our team here, um, maybe, you know, if you want to further engage with us as to helping match you, your organization with other entrepreneurs and or people who are successful, yeah, I'm very happy to do that. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if there's, there's other, you know, other examples of, um, of people who are doing similar things to us and, and your listeners might be interested in hearing hearing their story. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, that's what this is about, pushing your story out to them to inspire them, particularly 
if they want to do this sort of thing. I mean, and I think you started and or could be part of a much larger movement. I'll buy toilet paper from you. Yeah. No problem. And I'm yeah. happy to promote that. I think that's the that's the idea, right? 100%. That if you can do it with toilet paper, then you can do it with just about anything else as well. That, that seems <laughs> yeah. to be to be the case, 100%. And if I can help that, I will definitely do that. Awesome. It's brilliant what you've done and uh, I wish you all the best for the future. You're a smart young man doing in my view, great things. So good on you. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here and, and thanks so much for having me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.